You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, it is very nice to have the choir back in the loft. Uh, What a beautiful morning of worship this is. We're uh, concluding a three-part series on prayer entitled Q98 from the 98th question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which asks, what is prayer? You'll see this on your bulletin cover. A prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of sin and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. We saw as we began the book of 1 Samuel with Hannah that to offer up our desires does not mean to come in negotiation with one who would withhold from us His grace, but rather means to come before a covenant God who loves us in unconditional love. We saw next uh, the meaning of in the name of Christ when Eli provided priestly prayer on behalf of Samuel. He gave him the words. And likewise, when we realize we cannot pray, we have a Savior, the very Son of God, who offers a perfect response, a prayer of faith in our name, Uh, to the Father, and we enter into the very mystery of Trinitarian conversation, the Father, the Son, and even the Holy Spirit in us as we pray. Today we look at this third phrase, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of God's mercies. And I'd like to tell you the story of 1 Samuel chapter 4 uh, through 7, and to do so in three parts. Ebenezer, the kick, and prayer. But let's read uh, the end of the story. Uh, Would you open your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 5 through 12? You'll find that on page 218. Our text this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 5 through 12. And if you're able, would you stand with me and let's read aloud God's word. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you may say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. We're reading God's holy word. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. They fasted that day and said, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. The people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, and pray that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty voice that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out to Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as beyond Bethkar. 
Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Jeshana, and named it Ebenezer. For he said, Thus far the Lord has helped us. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Ebenezer. When you pray, you wake up to reality. Samuel might have said something just like that to us. If we could travel back through time and space and find ourselves in the 11th century B.C. to just outside of Mizpah and there, meet Samuel, struggling with this large rock. I'm making a token. I'm, I'm making a, a monument. Uh, we, we call it an Ebenezer. That's a two-part word. Eben is the Hebrew word for stone, and Ezer, the word for help. This, this, this stone is a stone of help. We would refer oftentimes to our Lord as our Ezer, God our helper. The Lord is our helper, but so easy to forget that. The trouble is, when you're in a dream... You don't know you're in a dream. Dreaming is just like reality, is it not? It's so convincing. It's so certainly reality that uh, you were to slip from reality into dreaming and back to reality and to dreaming and back again. You hardly know when you've made the transition without some kind of a token, without some physical, concrete thing that has an existence both in the dream and in reality, something that points you from the dream to the reality. Dreams, you see, are a form of amnesia, a kind of a forgetting. Dreams are a composite thing made of illusion and your own memory. Your memory furnishes the stuff, something from your past. But illusion contorts it and distorts it so that you're not sure anymore where you came from and you're not sure anymore how the dream will end. Your history is obscured and your future is very uncertain. Maybe you're dreaming now. <laughs> Don't think you expected to meet an 11th century prophet this morning, did you? Some of you may be sleeping, that's different. Dreaming. You don't think so? Perhaps if you're not dreaming or don't think that you are, it's because you remember how you got here. It's because you remember coming through that door. Or perhaps there's something physical in this space that reminds you of reality. A stone of help, this Ebenezer, will be of assistance to someone someday. You see, there are really only two ways to come out of a dream. Two ways to wake up. And one of them is to pray. It's really what prayer is. It subverts the dream. It reorients us to the reality of God's grace in our lives and in the world. 
But the problem is that in order to escape from a dream through prayer, you've got to know that you're in a dream. You've got to know that you need the escape. There needs to be something concrete that takes your mind off of the forgetfulness and pushes you towards reality. We need a token. To the kick. Well, I say that prayer is one way to access reality, but there is, there is another one, one you don't want to experience, a kind of a kick into reality. A kind of an influence on your dream, even as you're dreaming it, that makes it move, that rattles it, that shows its insubstantiality, that gives it the lie, that bursts in upon you with wakefulness in a moment of unpleasantness. You remember Shiloh, don't you? I told you about Shiloh. Shiloh was that place where I first woke up from my dreaming in prayer. I, I lay on the floor of that tent, our temple in the wilderness. And Shiloh was the central sanctuary of Israel. I heard my name called in the night. Popped me out of that dream. But Shiloh doesn't exist anymore. Not as we've known it. It's gone. It's been kicked out of existence. You see, it was, it, was, it was 20 years ago. In Shiloh, a scout came running into town, crying, agitated. Came up that road from the Philistines down on the coast and says to us, the Philistines have gathered on the border. They're in the city of Aphek, right at the foot of this road. And I think they mean to come up it. Well, this was not good news. You see, the Philistines were a people of far superior technology than we were. A mixed people who came from parts of the Aegean, and they had ships, and they had iron. Iron chariots, iron spears, and swords. Well, if we had thought about it, we'd have known no match for the Philistines. Except that we were dreaming. The, the single parasitic idea that gave shape to this dream was the notion that we could get the job done. This is what defined reality for us, this notion that we could get the job done. It, it, it was the illusion of our own competence. Nobody wants to be incompetent. We had come into Canaan, and we had good intelligence, and we were smart, and we looked around, and we saw how you get things done in Canaan. Well, politically, it would be better off without silly judges, men and women who were elders and think they know how to rule. We would need a king someday, like the other nations, and agriculturally, you would... Uh, you would resort to these um, deities, if you want to call them that, through sympathetic magic, Astartes and Baal, through whom the fertility of the land was provoked. 
And if you wanted to go to war, you knew how to do that also by mustering a giant army, all available men, and sending them into the field. This was a dream whose central parasitic idea was essentially that God is not our helper. Well, the only iron in Israel was irony, because as we took this army down the road towards Aphek, we had to pass through. In fact, we ended up camping in the city that was immediately adjacent to Aphek, just over the border on our side. And you know what the name of that city was? Ebenezer. Not this Ebenezer, not here. I'm just outside of Bizpah, but... Apparently, another city, Ebenezer, one who had sought to preserve the memory that the Lord is our helper. And this Ebenezer was to have been our token to wake us from our dream, you see. We should have known better. We should have known that the scriptures had promised that the Lord is our helper. The Lord, our God, goes before us, and he is the one who fights our battles. We should have read the 20th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy that would have told us that war is a sacred thing and that when we go out to make war, we weren't made for war. We should issue terms of peace. We should speak peace to our enemy. And if those terms were not received, then we should thin our, our army, not thicken it. Has anybody just built a house? Well, then go home to it. Has anybody just gotten engaged? Well, go back to your soon-to-be wife. Has anybody just planted a vineyard? Well, get out of here. This is not a place for you. Is anybody afraid? Well, then you too go home and there'd hardly be anyone left. Because we're not meant to fight our own wars. We're meant for a helper. But we pass by the token. And it didn't go well for us in Aphek. On the first day, 4,000. Four units, up to 1,000, died. We regrouped in camp. And the elders gathered and they said, well, we've made a mistake here. We've, we've got to draw our divinity into the battle. Let someone go get the ark. We'll go back up the road to Shiloh and Impose upon uh, Hophni and Phineas, if you can find them sober, and have them go into the holy place and grab that ark and bring it down the road and we'll have it in our camp and surely we'll, we'll force God to fight on our behalf. And uh, it didn't go well again. In fact, by the end of that battle, there were 30,000 Israelites dead. And as the scout would run back up that road with news for Shiloh, he would carry with him word that 30,000 were dead, that Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, had both been killed, and that the Ark of the Covenant, that sacred chest which housed the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod, and a jar of manna had fallen into the hands of the Philistines. That was the kick. When Eli heard it, he fell backwards 
to the ground and died. A kick will wake you up to reality, but it will wake you up to reality seen from the perspective of refusing God's grace. Three, prayer. You know, I learned something about prayer back then, 20 years ago, through this tragedy. It's funny. Um, I don't have time to tell you the whole story of the ark, but um, something strange happened with that box. You see, we had pulled the ark into our camp because we had wanted its powers. We had wanted its magic for our benefit, but it didn't work. It didn't work. So often we might say of our prayers that they just don't work. Neither did the ark. But when it fell into the hands of the Philistines, strange things began to happen. Strange and powerful things began to happen. I, I think I should say that truly in the hands of the Philistines, the ark did work. They put it in the temple of Dagon, their sacred temple, and woke up the next morning to find the statue of Dagon had fallen down and shattered, paying homage to this box. As they moved it from Philistine city to Philistine city, plagues broke out and they begged that this ark would be removed. And eventually they set it on a cart and sent two cows to deliver it wherever it would go knowing, in fact, as proved to be the case, that it would return to Israel. What was it about the ark that made it useless? No better than a, a crate, an empty crate to us, but made it a sacred, powerful sacrament of God's presence and work amidst the Philistines. I thought about that for 20 years, and I think I now know. You see, we used the ark to get what we wanted. And I noted that when the ark first arrived anywhere near the Philistines, they didn't see the ark as something they could use to get what they wanted. They saw the ark as a means by which the Lord performed his purposes. When the ark had first arrived at Aphek, the Philistines heard our cry of joy and acclamation and said, Gods have come into the camp. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. And their own priests associated this box with our redemption. An association that would have been helpful for us, but that we had missed somehow. And I think there are two such attitudes to prayer as well. One attitude in which we come to God as though he were sort of a, an exhausted and somewhat reluctant errand boy with yet another demand to go and do this and go and do that. And there is another kind of prayer that is the kind of cry heavenwards that's offered with a thrill of joy of one who has just been discovered in the dark bottom of a well crying out 
to her rescuer. There is a kind of a prayer that does not pierce the dream. That only acclimates itself to the architecture of the dream. It is in no way transcendent. It remains an experience of the self in the center. Self who is making itself the competent one, who is the agent of change. But there's another kind of prayer. And these, this kind of prayer is the kind of prayer that you just read about. It's the experience we had in Mizpah. And in Mizpah, there were two disciplines. And I, I've come today to call you, to invite you to these two disciplines in your own prayer life. And they're very simple and they're very practical. And the first one is confession of our sins. You see, when we confess our sins, we look backwards through the dream. Do I remember how I got into this place. When there's no substantial answer to that question, be very careful. That should alert you to the fact that you are dreaming. If you could unwind the narrative of the dream, if you could subvert its plot lines, then you will know. Then you will pierce the illusion. And we do that through confession. You read the story. We gathered in fasting. We gathered to pour out water as a symbol of our contrition, our brokenness before God. We said out loud, we have sinned against you, Lord. When was the last time you saw a group of religious people gather to openly acknowledge how broken they were? To make no effort to hide their need, to confess their rebellion. Failure in life, failure to worship, failure to love the Lord your God. This is the discipline. This is the first and most important discipline of a prayer. The, uh, the second most important discipline of prayer is thankful acknowledgement of God's mercy. They asked me to pray on their behalf in the midst of their contrition and confession, and so I did. But you don't hear the words of my prayer. What you see is something that I held up before the Lord. We took a lamb, a young lamb, and we offered a whole burnt offering. Now, many people get confused about offerings in our time, and they think that there's something that we give to God and yet we knew very well that this lamb was not something we were giving to God. Oh, well, we had raised the lamb, but that we gave the lamb to God was his idea. It was his institution. It was an expression of this grand narrative of his redemption in our lives and in the world. He had said, take a lamb on behalf of your sins and offer it to me. And I will reckon that lamb to you as your righteousness, as your peace, as your hope. We knew very well that this was his lamb. We closed our eyes in holy reverence and lifted before him this lamb as a sign of something he was giving us. We didn't know exactly what, but we knew it was something profoundly valuable, 
something of himself. Therefore, something so irrevocable that God could not rescind this gift of grace without denying his very being. So we weren't asking God for mercy at this moment. We were thanking God for mercy. We were acknowledging the gift of His grace that really defines who we are and our future. It is this Lamb. It is this Lamb that is reality. And so we held Him up in prayer before the Lord. For us, you have given this Lamb. And we give His perfections back to you in faith. And it was at that moment the intersection of our confession of sin and the acknowledgement of his divine grace in this Lamb, that the thunders of heaven roared. The very portals of our dreaming burst open to the brilliant reality of grace and the voice of God called from heavens in such a way that without the flash of a single sword, the Philistines fled. It's something you wouldn't want to forget. And so I raise this Ebenezer for you. Or so Samuel might have said. He might have reminded us in just this way uh, to pray. That when we pray, we admit who we are not. That we have gotten into a place that is insubstantial. But that we hold up before the Father a son who is the very essence of his life and heart and righteousness. We pray with confidence. And we know that as we pray in this way, the Father delights to hear us and send forth his spirit. It's appropriate uh, as we come to the conclusion of a series on prayer that we take some time to actually pray together and to pray Meaningfully, in response to the gift of Jesus' healing ministry, because that ministry continues uh, even today. In the same way that Israel had come to Samuel and said, Samuel, will you pray on our behalf? So in the scriptures we read in the book of James, in James chapter 5, that uh, the church is invited to come and seek the prayers of elders. And sometimes we, we find that our own prayers fail us, and it's just helpful to have somebody pray out loud on our behalf. And the anointing with oil was something familiar also to Samuel, who would anoint Saul as a king, who would anoint David as a king, who would christen them. Messiah, Mashiach, means the anointed one. And as we spread this oil on the, fa on the foreheads or wrists of those of you who come, we anoint you in the name of the anointed one, Jesus Christ, the Lamb whom we uphold in prayer. This oil is oftentimes a symbol of the Holy Spirit physically applied to a life. So James writes, are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up. And anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. What I love about these healing services is the open acknowledgement that we are a community who does not need to hide our brokenness because we have a loving and gracious 
Savior Jesus Christ. If this morning you feel he's prompting you to pray for an area of your life that has resisted his grace heretofore, would you come? It may be a relationship. It may be a besetting sin. It may be a fear. It may be your faith. You may choose to come for healing on behalf of somebody else, a dear friend. Be their proxy to stand and be anointed with oil. Uh, come this morning to do so. I'm going to invite the elders to come down here and gather in front and uh, invite you to stand uh, together and uh, sing a hymn. And as we sing, come forward for prayer. And if you're not coming forward, I would invite you to be in prayer, reverent prayer for those who do, and ask God to uh, be our peace this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.